are rolling once again, brother Kevin. Here we are. We did it. Ooh. We did it. Ooh. We covered marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and I think our listeners are really excited. I think they're as happy as we are to be finished with this particular topic so we can move on to some other things. We have caused more questions than answers, so it's time to move on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not sure that we could actually go that far. Um, We did receive some really good questions that we will be addressing. And in the past, we actually received more questions than we will be addressing in this Q&A. But a lot of the other questions that we had received, we were either answering in subsequent podcasts that that hadn't been released yet, or we were going to answer them in podcasts moving forward. So if you're listening and you don't hear your specific question answered in this episode, it's because we already answered it in one of the previous seven episodes where we talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and we take it, we dissect it, we look at it under a microscope, and then we put it all back together in a neat little box regarding the context in ancient times, regarding the context in scripture, things like that. So if you don't hear your question answered here, go back and listen to those episodes and you'll find it. And if nothing else, you'll be a little bit better for it. So, but yeah, it's been a really good study. I've really enjoyed doing it because, you know, this is something that you've studied in way more detail than I have. You've studied it longer than I have, but it has allowed me to sort of coalesce these different perspectives that I have been looking at and studying for myself. And it's helped me really put it together. And it's helped me to be able to articulate these perspectives and these ideas and beliefs better than I was able to before. So I've really enjoyed this, this discussion. I have too. It's been good. And I'm glad we did it. And I know we have taken our time with it. We haven't rushed through it by any stretch of the imagination. Probably some people wish that we were rushing a little bit more through it. But the reason why is, is really multiple reasons, but I would say at least twofold. Number one, we want to make sure that we we cover everything as, as in-depth as possible because it is such an important topic. But also when a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, someone is asking us questions or perhaps even asking you questions, this is going to be a good just a good reference for you to point people to if they really want to get into detail in the nitty gritty because so much material out there is surface level. And I'm not knocking that at all because if someone only has 20 or 30 minutes to talk about a subject, you really can't get that in depth into it. So that's why we've really chosen this format of the podcast to take our time because when someone does say, well, what about the present tense? Uh, How how do you handle that? Well, go back and listen. We'll point you to that podcast where we go into detail about that. And so we've tried to answer not just the main objections and hit the highlights, but we've tried to get into the weeds and discuss the exception clause and alternative understandings of the exception clause. We've pointed people to other sources besides those that agree with us. We've even pointed people to sources that do actually disagree with us because we want people to be able to study and come to their own conclusions. I mean, I have have faith in people that they will be able to study, come to their own conviction, and that's that's all anybody can ask for. So if people hear something that is different than what we believe and teach, then I encourage them to listen to it. I encourage them to study it and put it side by side with what we're teaching. And if it what we're teaching makes sense, accept it. If it doesn't make sense to you, then don't accept it. It's that simple. But this is something that does make sense to us based upon all of our study and something we're very convicted on. It makes way more sense to me because it appreciates the nuances that go into a topic like this 
because so much, and we were talking about this a little bit before we hit record, but so much of what we believe and so much of how we approach the scriptures and by we, I don't mean you and I, or people like us. I just mean people in general. So much of how we approach the scriptures is predicated upon a black and white worldview. It's an all or nothing worldview. And what we fail to understand is just like in life, the Bible is way more complex and way more complicated than what we might initially think. Life is complicated. The scriptures deal with life in many ways, and ergo, you're going to find some complicating factors presented therein. That's not to say that you need to have a PhD in theology to be able to understand marriage, divorce, and remarriage, or origins, or, or idioms, and things like that in order to meet Jesus. You can meet Jesus in the scriptures. You can find Jesus in the scriptures. You don't need all of this education and everything else to see that there is a God, that he loves us, that he gave his son for us as the propitiation, as the satisfaction for our sins, the atoning sacrifice, that there is a God who loves us. He sent his son to die for us. And if we place our faith and our trust in Jesus, then we can find our redemption and our reconciliation unto God. You don't need to have a deep understanding to get that. But with things like marriage, divorce, and remarriage, if you're going to get deep, there's more nuance to it. There are some gray areas. And and to admit that there's gray areas in the scripture, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable because we thrust ourselves into this enlightenment mentality, this, this modernist mentality of indubitable truth, that the scriptures are that source of indubitable truth, and that you're going to find it from Genesis 1 all the way to the last dot in the book of Revelation. And there are some issues with that that we'll get into in the in the weeks and in the months to come. Well, it's it's funny that you bring that up, and this is off subject a little bit, but I've been doing a lot of reading and research for my new book, and it's interesting because we always use the word conservative today in a way that really it 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 didn't used to mean. Uh, in fact, from the perspective of the idea that you can go to the Bible and you can always come to the correct conclusion on any conceivable issue and that it's very simple to understand and that we can have all of this knowledge and that everything is based upon this idea of just going to the Bible and having this knowledge, that is actually a, a very uh, conservative idea, uh, or I'm excuse me, a very liberal idea. It's, it's more the idea of postmodernism. It's the idea that we can be enlightened, that all we have to do is just study a little bit more and we can we can know everything. And it's it's actually a very liberal concept. So when people say that they're conservative today, uh, actually that's more liberal to to believe that you can kind of know everything and much less believe that your faith is dependent upon knowing everything. And, you know, that's why the more that I study, the more I realize I don't know. And the more I, the more open I become and the more I learn to actually have faith and trust in Jesus as my savior, realizing that it's not about coming to all the correct conclusions on absolutely every conceivable question that I may have, because for one, we may not always have the information that is available to come to those conclusions we want to come to. And number two, that's not what faith is dependent upon. It's not about me getting everything right, but it's about me knowing who Jesus is and developing a closer relationship with him. So just very interesting today that people who would claim to be conservative uh, are actually involving themselves in a more liberal ideology that everything is about the enlightenment, that you can know all of these things and it's all about knowledge, where true conservatism says, you know what, we really can't absolutely know everything there is to know. Now, I'm not talking about the idea that we can't know anything, 
but the idea that we believe that we are so smart as human beings and so objective that we will always come to the the right conclusion. And it and it tickles me when I read people or read articles and people say, you know, I just wish people would would become uh, just non-biased in their writings. I wish there was just more ob- objectivity of people talking about their beliefs. Well, that doesn't exist. Impossible. That that's doesn't impossible. exist. Yeah, like, like there's no way to be 100% object, uh, to, to be 100% objective in the way you read, in the way you write, in the way that you teach, in the way that you believe, because we all come to the table with biases. The best we can do is acknowledge that. And uh, true, true conservatism says that we need to be open and honest about our own biases and realize that we all the time can't know everything there is to know. In fact, we're not infallible. We're not infallible beings. We're very fallible people. And yes. so anyway, that's, that's kind of getting off the subject, but I just wanted to bring that up because when you talked about that, I thought that was a, a good, good point, good statement you made. Well, it's, it's incredibly important. And what Dr. Kenton Sparks, he's a, a, a biblical researcher and a biblical scholar out of Eastern University. The way he describes it is, is it's this idea of pragmatic optimism regarding postmodern thought. And it's this idea that we might not be able to have and ascertain a perfect, complete understanding of scripture, at least in this plane of existence, but we can have an adequate understanding of scripture. We can have an adequate enough understanding of scripture to know Jesus, to know who he is, to know God and to know who God is and to know how to approach them and how to be pleasing in his sight. And I I think that's a good point that he makes. It's a, it's a really good book. It's called God's word and human words. And I highly recommend it to everybody. It completely changed my entire perspective. It's, It's an excellent, excellent book. And I don't find myself agreeing with everything in it. It's a really good book, and we're not going to let this devolve into a book club. We are going to start talking about the Q&A here in a minute, but (laughs) it's a really good book. It's a heavy read. It's a really scholarly read. I'm a really fast reader, and it took me about three months to get through this book, and that's an eternity for me when it comes to reading a book. So I recommend that book to folks. You may read it and think it's absolute rubbish and trash. I got a lot out of it, so your mileage may vary. Well, and with that, that kind of leads us into our first question, really. But before we get into that, I just want to put a few disclaimers out there as we seek to answer these questions. These are questions that people have specifically written in to us. They want to know what our thoughts are on the matter. And before we answer, we we want to just put a disclaimer that we are not, first of all, licensed counselors and we are not mental health professionals. And so when you deal with relationships, oftentimes it is good to have good counsel. And by good counsel, I don't mean just someone who's your pal, but I'm talking about good professional mental health counselors who are able to work with you through these different issues. And so Lee and I are going to be giving our understanding based upon theology, and we do not have any personal involvement in the situations we are about to read about. In fact, most of these questions come from people I don't even know. I've never even met before. And so what we're doing is just giving our answers based upon the information we were given. And we are giving these answers from a theological perspective, not from a medical perspective, not from a a mental health perspective, not from a, a counseling perspective, but based purely upon our understanding of theology. So I really want to stress that. And one of the reasons why is because before you make a decision, if you're listening to us and you have been thinking about getting divorced, divorce is something that is horrible. As someone who has gone through it, it's absolutely horrible. And if there is any way 
any way whatsoever for the marriage to continue, if there's any way for your marriage to be saved, that is God's will. Ultimately, that is God's will. And so before any decision is made, we encourage you to, to pray, seek guidance, both professionally, both pastorally, speak to your family, speak to your friends, do, do anything possible, take time before rushing into uh, to any major decision. And we don't want to be the condemning party or the justifying party to anyone's situation. We were just trying to get the information out there and allow people to therefore use that information to make the best decision possible in their own marriage. Yes, we take no credit and we take no blame for any decisions that you choose to make with this information. It's it, We are here to provide what we have studied and what we understand to be biblical truth and what we understand and believe to be the best biblical case regarding this subject. But your life is your life. Whatever decision you make, you don't need to say, well, Lee said it was okay, or Kevin said that we could do this, or, you know, well, now I'm justified. Your faith has to be your own. Your faith doesn't need to be someone else's faith. Because if you're doing that, you're basing your decisions, a decision that can irrevocably alter the course of your life. If you're basing that on something that I said or something that Kevin said alone, and you're not looking into this in more depth. And like Kevin said, so many people, they don't go to others. They're so embarrassed by it, or they're so you know, withdrawn within themselves. They don't want to ruin their reputation or they don't want to ruin the reputation of their spouse. Or they're so worried about saving face in the eyes of others or in the presence of others that they don't go and seek counseling. They don't go and seek pastoral help, whether it's for fear of that or whether it's their own ego thinking that they don't need it or whatever else. If this person would just do what's right or if, you know, my wife or my husband would just do what the Lord says or just do what I want them to do, we wouldn't have any problems. In a situation like that, if you're saying, well, Lee said it or Kevin said it, and you're not going through the channels that can give you the help you really need to either make it work or to guide you to making the best decision for you in light of what the scriptures teach, in light of what you know we know about human psychology and what we know about relationships, well, then you're really not doing your due diligence to take those steps. So what Kevin said is absolutely true. I am a medical professional, and in this, in answering a couple of these questions, we will be talking about some medical things, but this is not medical advice. This is not relationship advice that we are demanding that you heed, or it, this is just us presenting the theology behind it and some of the nuances that may go into it. So with that being said, let's get into it. Are you ready, brother? I am ready. Oh, yes. Right. And you know, I actually... I, I, I actually had it in my notes here that we are not mental health professionals. So actually, Dr. Lee Grant is a health professional. But not a mental, a mental health, health professional. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that my five credit hours of clinical um, psychology and practical application of psychology counts as making me a mental health professional. It does not count, but... It well, gives me a little bit of insight and it gives me enough to recognize when someone needs that mental health and be like, you know, you might want to talk to somebody about that. So. And that's what's scary to me too, because so many preachers think because they are in a position of authority that that gives them a right to tell someone what they should or shouldn't do, especially from a, a counseling perspective. When they've not actually had the training, they're sitting here trying to to counsel someone and just like yourself, I went through classes. I went through some counseling classes, but you know they really 
didn't teach me a whole lot. I'm going to be honest. And, and I certainly, I certainly am not comfortable telling someone this is what you should do, or this is what you have to do, unless I am specifically involved in that situation. And if I am specifically involved in a situation, I do have friends who, who are licensed professionals, they're counselors, they're psychologists, psychiatrists that I actually uh, talk to and bring into the situation, or I'll at least get their advice too. And so be careful when you're talking to other preachers who they're trying to, if they're trying to give you a lot of mental health advice, if they're trying to give you uh, relationship advice, if they don't have the proper credentials to do so. Uh, that's something that I always caution people against. I'm not knocking any preachers out there. Uh, I'm not knocking individuals who have spent hours helping people in certain situations. But at the end of the day, people are called professionals for a reason. And that's because they have spent the majority of their life studying a, a specific topic or field. And so I always try to leave leave that up to the professionals. And so I hope that's enough of a qualifier. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a perfect qualifier. I think that really sums it up. And, you know, we've rambled on now for almost 20 minutes without even getting to a question. So let's go ahead and dive into the questions. So question number one comes from one of our listeners, and they said this. You spoke a lot about the historical context of marriage, divorce and remarriage in your series. Are you saying that we cannot properly understand the Bible and Jesus on the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage without knowing the context and the extra biblical sources you brought in? And I think that's a really good question, and that's a really kind of a tough question. It's a challenging question to lead things off with, and it's as good as any place to start. So what are your thoughts on that question? How would you go about starting to answer that idea? Well, that's a great question because it actually delves into a much larger topic, and that is how do we approach the Bible, which, by the way, I'm going to be writing a book about that topic. I'm in the middle of writing a book on that topic right now. Hey. So it's a it's a very important question because you could not just ask that, or you could ask that question not just about the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but you could ask that very same question about pretty much any topic that you ever study. The idea that all you need is the Bible to understand the Bible is actually a utopian concept. And it's yeah. based upon a misunderstanding of what is oftentimes referred to as sola scriptura that seeks to excuse the need for context. And usually this is not intentional. It's just something that people have bought into, this idea that all we need is the Bible to understand the Bible. And in doing that, it has allowed Bible students to actually study the Scripture in a very personal way to interpret it in a subjective manner. So instead yeah. of actually trying to figure out what the intent of the original author was and how people would have understood those writings, we are able to just pick up the Bible and really interpret it any way we want to based upon our own personal understandings. And we actually believe that's taking the higher moral ground because we say that we are just letting the Bible interpret the Bible. But that's actually not letting the Bible interpret the Bible when you ignore the context. That's allowing yourself to interpret the Bible without properly understanding the context. And so yes. this idea of sola scriptura, it's the idea that the Bible alone is sufficient and is the only authoritative source. Thus, we don't need any creeds or any ad additional type of, of laws or traditions that are put into law to understand the Bible. And that's something, obviously, 
I certainly would would agree with. I don't I don't believe that we need to try to turn to church tradition to try to figure out what we should or shouldn't do. I believe we should try to go and look to the the early scriptural writings that we have to ascertain truth. However, I certainly also do not agree though that the Bible can just be interpreted by using the Bible without understanding the context, because yeah. we could really flip this question and say, well, can we understand any topic without the context? And if the answer is yes, then how, how, how are we going about trying to arrive at truth? I mean, how is that not personalizing your own, your own personal truth? How yeah. is that not it, making the Bible whatever you want to make it? Well, and one of the issues you run into with contextualization is, and this is an example that I've used whenever I've had this conversation with other people is, you know, sola scriptura and that philosophy of, of the Bible alone arose as a, as a result of creeds, catechisms, and church tradition as a, as a critique against those things. And, you know, if you're looking at a creed as nothing more than a summary statement of what you believe and why, well, that's that's one thing, but to take a creed as authoritative, that's another matter entirely. But one of the examples I like to use as it relates to context is the idea. It's funny because in tech circles, there are people who are really adamant and passionate Apple iPhone users, and there are people that are really passionate and adamant Android phone users. And if I were to say, man, you know, the iPhone versus Android debate is a real hot potato. It's a real hot potato issue. You understand what I mean. I understand what I mean. Anybody in our modern parlance understands what, what that statement means. It's, it's a controversial subject for some people. But let's say you fast forward a thousand years from now, if the Lord tarries, you fast forward a thousand years from now, and they unearth these writings that Lee Grant wrote, and they say, Oh, wow. This Lee Grant guy was a smart dude. I don't know why anyone would say that, but let's say that they do. And he said, wow, this iPhone and Android debate is a real hot potato. Well, apparently there were these kinds of potatoes way back in 2020. One type of potato was called an iPhone and the other type of potato was called an Android. And he said that these potatoes were hot. So does that mean that they were spicy or does that mean that somehow they were thermodynamic and generated their own heat source? Well, how spicy were they? Which one was hotter? Which one was it? Was it like wasabi or horseradish or was it more like a habanero pepper? So that statement would need to be contextualized. And we recognize that here. And that's kind of a kind of a silly point. But I mean, appealing to the context of scripture doesn't contradict scripture. Appealing to context of sola scriptura or scripture alone, that doesn't violate the idea that you're still looking at scripture alone. You're contextualizing it at that point. Well, by not allowing yourself and others to study and look at the context of the Bible, of, of any particular letter or book that you're studying at the time, in doing so, we're actually taking away from the real biblical meaning. Oh, yeah. And and that's something that a lot of people don't think of. I, I had a good good friend of mine. He was an older man. This has been years ago. And he was probably at the time in his 70s. And he had he was recently converted. He had not been a Christian for too long. And this is a, during my very, very legalistic days. And so I would always preach sermons about not adding to or taking away from the Bible. And he and I, we, we studied about once a week during this time, and I always would take a commentary with me 
to get into the context, to understand the historical context so that we would have a better understanding at that time of, of what Paul Paul's audience was thinking or what, you know, what was going on with Timothy or, or Titus or whatever it may be, whatever particular passage or book we were studying at the time. And the, the first time I did it, I remember he told me, he said, put that away. He actually backed up when he saw I had it. He said, whoa, 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 no, no, no. He said, I only read the Bible. I only read the Bible. He said, put that thing away, put that thing away. And he said, that's adding to the Bible. And I kind of laughed wow. and I said, I said, well, I said, look, this is no different than just a third person being here. I said, obviously I'm here. And I said, so you're not asking me to leave. If all you need is the Bible, why am I here? He goes, well, you're helping me understand it. I said, well, you, you know how I'm helping you understand it because I am going to other sources that are helping me understand it better because we're looking at the context and and I'm studying the historicity of this particular passage or book and that's going to help us have a better understanding of how they understood it and how we are to understand it and apply it today. And finally I think he got to the point where he was okay with it after a period of time. He still didn't like it. He still didn't like it, but yeah. he finally said, oh, "Okay, I'll allow it." But it really this this question comes down to this. Either context is inconsequential to the subject under consideration or it's not. And if we believe that context is something that is is consequential, then yes, we need to study context. We we I'm going to go as far to say we have to study the context because otherwise we're doing ourselves not just a disservice but we are not even properly reading and, and studying the Bible if we don't understand the context that's surrounding it. And that's why you have had so many people come to these weird positions, one of which is, yeah. uh, I, I don't know how much you and I have talked about this, but this is some information I'm also going to be putting in my book about the problem of reading the Bible with the understanding that you can just go to the Bible and read it and simply apply it. When you do that, you're going to have all sorts of, of crazy, crazy, crazy conclusions. And one of which, actually there's several examples, I'm not going to really cite too many tonight, but just one to give you a sampling is found in Hermas writings called the Shepherd of Hermas. And it was a vision, yeah. it looked like a man who was a shepherd who was who was an angel telling him these, these different revelations. And also there was another man by the name of Tertullian who came after the Shepherd of Hermas. And both these men ultimately believed that you could not repent after you became a Christian, that you could no longer repent. Now, the debate, though, centered around the idea of could you repent at least once? Because Hermes admitted that he once had a lustful thought <laughs> after becoming a Christian. And so Only he asked, once? That's what he said wow. in his writings. And so he believed that you could repent one time. Uh, after you became a Christian, but that's it. That's it. So he, he kind of changed his tune to become more, li more quote-unquote, liberal by saying, well, you could repent one time. Well, Tertullian, while later writing about him, said that, you know, he was he was too, too, uh, too liberal. He was too soft because the Bible doesn't allow for any repentance at all once you become a Christian. Well, they got that idea from Hebrews 10, 26 and Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, that there no longer remains yeah. a sacrifice. And... So if you're just reading the Bible straightforward, you're going to come to conclusions such as you can't repent any and after you become a Christian, that's it. You have to live a sin, sinless life in order to go to heaven, which is obviously ridiculous, but that's the problem. These are the problems if you don't properly understand the context. Uh, we have other early church fathers who they literally wanted to die 
for the cause of Christ because they believed that that was something that they had to do in order to properly follow the footsteps of Jesus. They believed that martyrdom was actually part of being a Christian. And, yeah. and the reason is because of the, the passages where both Paul and Peter talked about persecution. And, and, and even people today read those passages and they try to create persecution that's just not there because they want to make sure that they're fulfilling these commands that ultimately weren't even written to them. It didn't have anything to do with yeah. them. And so really, do, do you believe that con that context is important? And if, if it is, then the answer to this question is, yes, you do have to understand the context to come to a proper conclusion. Because the, yeah. the alternative is you don't have to understand the context. And if you don't have to understand the context then you can just basically make the Bible say anything you want it to, want it to say, and that's what most denominations, uh, including the Churches of Christ, have done. Well, and brother, I think that's spot on, because whenever you make the statement that does context matter, if it does matter, then you do need to know that context to arrive at the appropriate conclusion to have a full understanding of the topic at hand. I mean, you don't have to have a graduate level or PhD understanding of reproductive physiology or cellular recombination to know how to make a baby. You don't really have to study it all to get the basic understanding of what goes into it. I mean, we kind of naturally know that, but if you want to understand how exactly it happens and you want to understand what are the steps, the physiological steps that take place hormonally that take place at the cellular level, whenever, you know, meiosis takes place, which is, you know, cellular reproduction, whenever the um, genetic recombination takes place and you have the, you know, two diploid gametes or haploid gametes rather becoming a diploid gamete, which then gives rise to the zygote, which then gives rise to the developing child within the womb. It, there's a lot of study. You have to study really, really, really hard and do a lot of reading if you want to know the physiology that takes place in reproduction. And that's something that we all as humans have an inborn intrinsic nature to know how to do. But we don't understand all the details that, that go into it on a cellular level and exactly how it happens. You know, whenever I taught anatomy and physiology for the local college here, I did that for about seven years. It was amazing in those years that I taught how many women came through the class. And it was mostly women because it was mostly nursing students or pre-nursing students that, that I would teach. It was amazing how few understood exactly how their bodies worked. You know, they lived with it and they understood the practical application, but they didn't really understand how it worked. And it's, it's the same, th it's kind of the same principle or the same concept whenever it comes to the scriptures. You don't need that PhD the in theology to find Jesus. You don't have to have that PhD in theology to seek God, to know God, and to make him known to the world. But to understand the nuances behind these situations that these writers wrote about. And we need to recognize and understand that the biblical writers, those inspired men who wrote the things that they wrote, they didn't write them to us, to us in the 21st century. But there is application there for us. And like yeah. you said, you're going to you're going to fall to some really weird conclusion if you if you leave that alone. Well, we even see in passages such as Acts 831 with the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch when he's reading a passage about Jesus. And and, you know, he, Philip asked, well, do, you, do you know what you're reading? He said, well, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? Well, 
what's he going to be explaining to him? Oh, at, at the foundation of that question is, I need more context. I, I can't just pick up this book and, and know that this is about Jesus. I need to understand. I need somebody to teach me. I need more context. Well, anytime you say that someone needs to teach you something, what you're saying is there needs to be more context. That's that's really what yes. you're saying. There's There needs to be more education. There needs to be more context. And so I think we have really done a disservice in the way that we have told people that, well, they can just, you can just go to the Bible and you can just understand everything. No, you can't. And, and that's why there has been so much confusion. And that's why there's been so much division, because first of all, we have made the expectation extremely high, believing that just anybody can pick up the Bible at any moment, at any time, and just read it and come to proper conclusions on everything. That's ridiculous. And perfect understanding. Yeah. And perfect understanding. Yeah, in, it doesn't in, make sense. In what context, or, or not context, but in what scenario can anybody just pick up a writing, regardless of what genre it is, and just apply it without properly knowing the context behind that writing and and who that writing was to and what that writing was for and who wrote it and what's it about and, and what the theme is and when it was written and who it was written to. All those different things play an important factor. And when we have that information at our fingertips, to simply brush it off and say, well, no, it's not necessary because I have the document in front of me is actually to, to downplay the document itself because you're saying that I don't want to take the time to figure out what this actually means, I would rather just read it and allow my own filter of experiences to interpret what I'm reading. And that's what most people do, not with just a topic of marriage, divorce, remarriage. They come to the Bible. They they may know little to nothing about what they're reading, specifically as far as the context is concerned, and go, well, this is what the Bible means to me. This, this, yeah. this, is, this is how I understand this passage. And it's this reader response is the technical phrase for it, where you just read and then you respond. Well, what does that mean to you? Well, that's kind of a silly question. That's, that's kind of a silly question. If you gave me Plato and said, Kevin, read this passage, what does it mean to you? What it may mean to me may be not even close to what it actually is supposed to mean and what it originally meant. And that's why we have so many different beliefs is because people are more concerned about what the Bible means to them as an individual as what it originally meant when it was being written to the, the original audience. Yeah. And it, and I think that especially in light of this, you, you can't ignore context when it comes to marriage, divorce and remarriage. You have to have that to arrive at the proper conclusion or to at least understand the topic that's being discussed. Now, whenever they talk about in the second part of this question, you know, what about the extra biblical sources? You know, maybe all that's well and good, someone might say, but, you know, I really feel uncomfortable with that. Well, even if you don't look anywhere but the Bible, the case that you and I have laid out over the last how many hours over seven episodes, you can still make that case, even if you don't look outside of the Bible. I mean, Exodus 21 and 10 reveals the framework that the Jews followed regarding rendering their marital rights, the affection due their wives. And Paul references that in 1 Corinthians 7 and 3. In Jesus' teaching, you see the Jews asking about Deuteronomy 24 and 1 through 4. Now, someone may say, well, how do you know they're talking about that? Well, because the Jews specifically mentioned the divorce certificate. And that's where Moses said anything about the divorce certificate was Deuteronomy 24. And whenever Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, he's teaching that divorcing to marry another is adultery unless marital unfaithfulness has already taken place. And that's a comment on what uncleanness meant in Deuteronomy 24. That was also a comment on their practices from the time of Malachi onward, as we talked about in all of those episodes. 
With Paul, you have abandonment say to release one from their bond to the spouse. Paul says to all unmarried that if they marry, they have not sinned. It wasn't a sin to marry for all unmarried during the present distress where marriage wasn't really a good idea to begin with. We can reasonably assume the same for those outside the present distress. All of that being said, the case that you and I have made, even if you don't have a large grasp on the context, you can still make that case from the scriptures itself. But whenever you start to look at the literary context and you start to look at the historical context behind it and you stack all that on top of everything, you don't find any contradiction to this position. The historical, the cultural, the literary context support what you and I have spent so much time elucidating and bringing to the forefront. So in answer to this question, yeah, I mean, you can't ignore context whenever you're seeking to understand the Bible. It's an ancient book written to an ancient people, written by a diverse group of people. It was written by paupers and by kings. And to ignore the context is to do so at our own peril. So is there anything else that you want to add to that and that answer? No, I think that gets it with that one. All right. Well, let's go to question that one. Let's go to question number two. Question number two. Can you give commentary and advice on my situation? Oh boy, here we go. I am a single man and have never been married. I had sex with a woman who was married. Her and her husband are now divorced because of this, and he has remarried. We both realize what we did was wrong and have asked God to forgive us and are both back in church now. We're now dating, but I was told that we cannot marry and we need to stop dating, even though we have both since repented. It doesn't seem fair that I can remarry. Oh, that's interesting. It doesn't seem fair that I can remarry, but she is told she has to remain unmarried the rest of her life, even though I participated in the same sin with her. Why am I being told that I can repent of my adultery and remarry, but she can't repent of her adultery and remarry, even though her ex-husband has already divorced her and remarried? What I was told doesn't seem just or biblical. Can you comment on this situation? Oh, that's a doozy, brother. That's a doozy. Man, first of all, if you're listening to this, you who wrote this question in, man, my heart goes out to you, brother. You're in, you're, you're in kind of a tight spot. I love you. And hopefully you can find some peace in, in the answers to come and through your own study and through Jesus ultimately. So where would you even start with this one? Well, I would start by from my understanding of the way that the question is worded, he's never been married. So I, I would say that he's not, it's not a matter of him being able to remarry. It's a matter of him being able to marry. And uh, so I, I don't know if that makes much of a difference to people listening. Cause to, to me, my, the first, when I heard that, I'm thinking, well, he's not really remarrying cause he's never been married to begin with. So, you know, I'm reading the question in my mind. It doesn't seem fair that he can marry, but that she is told that she can't marry for the rest of her life. And and really, I don't even like the phrase remarry uh, because it really throws folks off. Because as we talked about in the Bible during that time, you were either married or you you were unmarried. There wasn't a third category. So if you were divorced, you were unmarried. If you were single and had never been married, if you were a virgin, you were unmarried. If you were widowed or a widower, then you were unmarried. And so the only classifications you have are married and unmarried. And whether it's your second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth marriage, it's not a remarriage, it's just a marriage. So the idea of kind of the way that we talk about remarriage today is is not really, um, 
it's a know, new concept. It, yeah. yeah, it is. It is. And I, I know some translations, um, I think may use the phrase. I, I'm not sure. Um, off the top of my head, I was thinking I may have read one somewhere in my study that, that used that, but it's kind of throws people off because either, you know, you're talking about marriage or, or you're not. And so clearly in this situation, uh, first of all, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that he's honest. He and this woman who he had sex with, they both have repented and realized what they did was wrong. They realized what they did shouldn't have been done. And both of them right now are unmarried, uh, as I as based upon I'm looking at the question here in front of me. And the man who was married to this woman before she cheated on him has now remarried. And at this point in time, what would both the woman and the writer need to do? Well, I think this is a 1 Corinthians 7 situation where reconciliation is not possible. The, the woman can't go and be reconciled uh, back to, <laughs> to, to her husband, who her ex-husband, because now he, is, he has remarried somebody. And so now what would be the, the options for this woman? Well, I think she's already done what she needs to do, and that is she would need to repent. She needs to realize that the adultery she was involved in was sinful. It was wrong. Uh, obviously, the writer who's writing this question realized that what he did was wrong. The adultery was wrong. They're two unmarried people, and there is no opportunity for reconciliation at all. So at this point in time, if both of you decided to marry each other, or if both of you decided to marry somebody else, there would not be a thing wrong with that, according to what we see, not just in 1 Corinthians 7, but really just the, the whole tenor of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, because the only thing that would not allow her to marry is if she, A, would still be married to the man, which clearly he's already divorced her, or B, if there is an opportunity for reconciliation, which clearly there's not. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if you guys marry, you have not sinned. Well, and that's exactly what Paul says. And one of the things that's so interesting to me, though, is in this question is this statement that it doesn't seem fair that I can remarry, but she is told she has to remain unmarried the rest of her life, even though I participated in the same sin with her. And that's really the conclusion that legalism leads you to in something like this. You know, you have a dude, he's like, hey, I'm just as guilty as she is, but I'm scot-free. I can marry anyone that I wish, but she has to remain celibate the rest of her life. And he's right. It isn't just. It isn't fair. And even though that was sin that they engaged in, they recognize it as such. They've repented. And if they marry, they haven't sinned. She's no longer in bondage under the bonds to her previous husband and she is an unmarried person. He's an unmarried person. They can remarry. I think that's spot on. So question number three in Deuteronomy 24, if a man finds uncleanness and that uncleanness means evidence of fornication, could it not be that she didn't commit adultery, but that she wasn't a virgin, that there was evidence of premarital sex with an unidentified individual Uncleanness might be referring to STDs like genital herpes. Just a thought, but I haven't heard this particular theory before. And I think that's a really, really good question. And from where I sit from a, a medical perspective, that seems to make sense based on what I understand. That uncleanness had several different meanings to different people in that time. As we mentioned previously in our podcast, you have the school of Shammai, 
who refer to that. Hey, I got it right that time. The school of Shammai that referred to it. <laughs> That's okay, as, man. I butcher words all the time. All the time. It's that Alabama coming out and you and that Oak coming out and me, bro. Hooked on That's phonics what? did not work for me. Hooked on phonics <laughs> did not work. But that uncleanness was, was viewed by the school of Shammai as adultery, but the school of Hillel viewed it as any type of uncleanness. So I guess it would, I guess in a contextual answer to this question, it would depend on which school you fell into. Well, I'm not sure when you look at Deuteronomy 24 and, and when you look at the the question here, is is the question being asked from a perspective of what it originally meant or what it came to to mean? Because yeah. we talked about this in the first, I believe the first episode, where originally Deuteronomy 24, we really don't know what it means. And so from that perspective, this theory to me is just as good as any other theory because we really just don't know. Yeah. Uh, exactly what it originally meant. But we do know that it came to be used even by God as a more merciful means of of punishment, if you will, to those who were committing adultery versus the death penalty. And so that's just something that, um, that I, by the way, I wanted to go back to the, the last question. I just wanted to interject one thing in there about the justness of the man talking about how you know, he had sex with a married woman and basically all he has to do is just say a prayer and he can move on. But according to that legalistic view, she now is damned to celibacy for the rest of her life, which by the way, we just explain why we don't believe that. And we spent hours explaining why we don't believe that. But it is interesting, even from a Jewish perspective and contextually looking at the Old Testament, because if a man and a woman were having adultery, both the man and the woman were to be punished. And yeah. so it wasn't just the, the, the woman, it was the man and it wasn't just the man, it was the woman. So it's interesting that particularly this guy's situation that he asked about, he basically gets off scot-free and, and the woman doesn't. And that just, it, it just shows so much inconsistency, so much lack of context, so much lack of understanding of the old Testament, but also just Jesus and, the, and, and his nature and his justice and the consistency of his mercy and redemption. So I, don't, I didn't really mean to get off too much on that. I just wanted to to uh, to go back there. But as far as the question on Deuteronomy 24, yeah, I, I wouldn't see any problem with that being a possibility because I don't really know if we can know exactly what it originally meant, but we do know what it came to mean, which was which was adultery. Yeah, one of the things I tend to geek out on sometimes is ancient perspectives on medicine and ancient perspectives on disease. There's it's it's a really fascinating thing that I've just started in the past probably eight or ten months to start to kind of read up on, and diseases mutate, different types of diseases that used to exist no longer exist, and there are new diseases that exist now that didn't exist then, and I can't help but wonder if some of these herpes zoster viruses and different um, different STDs that exist today existed back then. It's it's a really interesting point, and it's a really interesting wrinkle in this. I, and I agree with you. I think that it's definitely possible that that's what that's referring to. Um, it's possible, but like you said, we don't know. And it's hilarious because some people get really uncomfortable when you say we don't know. We have to have indubitable truth. We have to understand all of it. We have to know all of it, Kevin. You're saying we don't know. I don't buy it, man. Come on, we have to know it. We can know. Well, that's that. That's that liberalism coming out in people. Oh yeah. <laughs> Touche. I would I would I would rather err on the side of of being conservative and and 
you know, saying, Hey, we, we can't know everything. I've really, <laughs> and you know, I've really gotten comfortable, way more comfortable. It was really uncomfortable at first, but I've gotten a whole lot more comfortable saying, I don't know. And it, it takes a lot to be able to admit you don't know something and that's okay. We don't have to know everything. Um, question number four, let's get to this. And, oh, that, yeah, this is kind of a good one. Isn't Jesus's agreeing with Shammai an assumption? How do we know that we know that the Shammai Hillel debate is the context of Jesus's comments? How do we know Jesus wasn't making new law in Matthew 5 or in Matthew 19? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, really, there's there's a lot of ways to address this question. Number one, you can address it purely contextually and say, well, it's not an assumption because an assumption is when you come to a conclusion with no evidence. And we provided a more than enough evidence to show that that would have been the context in which Jesus was speaking in. So yeah. certainly is not an exception uh, or, or, excuse me, an assumption, but just like anything, we're trying to just figure out what is the best conclusion. And the more context that we know, the the better our conclusion can be grounded in that context. And so, you know, if you're speaking from the aspect of, well, well, how do we know? Well, I mean, I could ask, how do we know that the New Testament is really from God? I mean, how, how do we know the book of Hebrews should be in the New Testament when it wasn't even, we don't even know who wrote it? I mean, there's a lot of factors we could be asking. How do we, how do we know that we know? Um, so I, depending upon how that question's being asked, if we're saying, is there a good probability that Jesus was speaking within that context? Sure. And that's all we can really ask. And my, my follow-up question would be, if that's not the context in which Jesus is speaking, based upon what we have discussed, well, can, can you show me what context Jesus would be speaking in? Uh, if, that, if, if it's not Shammai and Hillel, then what exactly would it be? Because we've given... Uh, proof positive affirmative arguments as to why we believe that that is the case. And so those would need to be addressed before we could we could begin to look at um, some other theories, which I'm fine looking at, but they would have to be rooted in, once again, the historicity and not just somebody's speculation. Because when we talk about Hillel and Shammai, we're not speculating. We're, we're, we're talking about the documents that have been thoroughly, thoroughly proven to be authentic and just the context at that time. So... As far as the uh, kind of your your other the, or the other question there you asked, oh, you know Jesus isn't given a, a new law because he said he's not in Matthew five seventeen and eighteen in terms of his teachings on moral law. Uh, he, yeah. You know, we I think we discussed why well, was it episode four or five where we talked about how uh, Jesus said that he he literally said in, in Matthew five seventeen through eighteen I'm not I'm not about to give you all these new laws and and to yeah. me one of the strongest arguments for that is. The scribes and Pharisees were looking for Jesus to contradict the law. Now, Jesus did contradict the understanding of marriage, divorce, and remarriage at that time by agreeing with Shammai, because that was definitely the view that most disagreed with, because it was the the more, quote-unquote, difficult position, whereas Hillel allowed divorce for any reason. And so most people followed after Hillel. In fact, in Stone Brewer, demonstrates and, and shows why most people, if not all people, who divorced during that time in the first century and before were divorcing for any reason. Hardly anybody would go to Shammai judge when you could just go to Hillel judge and they would allow you to divorce for any reason. I mean, why in the world would you go anywhere else when you could just go to uh, to 
Hillel and, and be able to divorce for any reason you wanted to. So uh, so we know that he wasn't given a new law because they would have said, hey, Jesus, you're given a completely different new law. This is something nobody's ever heard before. You're contradicting uh, the law. And so now we have something to to condemn you for. But they yeah. knew that Jesus was, Jesus was disagreeing with their understanding of the law, but Jesus wasn't giving a, a new law uh, by any stretch of the imagination because he said he wasn't. Well, and I think that that's an excellent point to make because for one, Jesus says that he's not making new law in Matthew 5, 17. He says that point blank. There it is done. But then someone would say, well, how do we know that that's not the case in Matthew 19? And what you just said about the Pharisees and Sadducees and all the Jews in his area being ready, willing and able to nail him if he were to do that. You know, they've got him now. Oh, we've got you over barrel. You just contradicted the law. You just blasphemed the law, Moses. We can get you. If Jesus did that, they would have done it right then and there. We know he didn't. And we know he didn't because they didn't get him right then and there. Secondarily, I think we can very reasonably conclude that if Jesus is not giving new law because he didn't get it right then and there, well, then he's commenting on something that they would have accepted as an interpretation of the law. And Shammai fits that fits that mold perfectly. Well, and one and, other one other point I want to interject here is, in my opinion, the toughest question that someone would have to answer, and this is the, this is one of the questions that I had to answer and realized I couldn't answer, which is what led me to realize my own inconsistency. And that is if if my new view was correct that Jesus was giving a a new law on marriage, divorce, remarriage, a higher standard law, and he wasn't just properly teaching the the Jewish law, then you would have to argue that Jesus was actually retracting the very laws that were put in the the Jewish law to protect the innocent. And Jesus is now retracting those laws. That would be the only thing Jesus was doing. That would be the only difference. And that doesn't even speak to the hard-heartedness. How is retracting laws put in place to protect the innocent addressing the hard-hearted? It's not. Therefore, Jesus could not be retracting those laws because it's not addressing the issue that Jesus specifically is addressing. Absolutely. So the next question relates to Paul. If Paul is answering a specific question and his answer is contextualized by the present distress, and if that present distress is no longer an issue, then how can we reasonably apply his teachings on marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Hmm. So ask that again. I want to make sure I understand. All right. So the question says, if Paul is answering a specific question and his answer is contextualized by the present distress, if that present distress is no longer an issue, then how can we reasonably apply his teachings on marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Well, where I, I would well, where I would start with this is the to me it seems like that we're overstating the application of context. If we say that context doesn't just elucidate the principles under which God has called his people to live and the context is incredibly rigid and we're required to anchor all truth to the context, well, then we can discard the entirety of the Bible because it was written by ancient people to ancient people under a completely different context than we live in. And that's not a conclusion that I think anyone can can come to. I mean, recognizing the context as the backdrop for the truths that God elected to reveal by the Holy Spirit, 
that is altogether different than stating that the context is the absolute focus. It's making the context the focus rather than the truth. It's making the historical and cultural trappings the truth rather than the principles communicated through that culture and sometimes in spite of that culture. Yeah, and I I would even go as far to say, if I understand the question correctly, I I don't even know... uh if you can directly apply something that it, that is contextualized, I don't think it's meant to be directly applied. And you brought this up earlier. You know, the Bible's not written to us. I believe it was written for us. And that's a big difference. And so when we see not just passages like first Corinthians seven, but passages in first Timothy chapter two, where the Bible speaks of women not wearing uh, certain jewelry or have the, having their hair braided and those types of things, well, is there a principle that can still be applied? And what is the overarching principle there? The overarching principle isn't about braided hair or jewelry. The overarching principle is about modesty. The overarching principle is about how, how a woman is to carry herself. Now, that's a completely different topic we will get into probably in the future about the, the role of both men and women in and out of the church. But the point is, is that I don't think you could go directly to First Corinthians 7 and say, well, this is present day distress, but this is what Paul says, thus you must do it. However, I would look at what Paul's writings say, and I would say, well, if there is a distress that's happening today, would it be wise to take those same wisdom words of Paul that, that he wrote about and say, we could apply this to this present day distress? And, and not everything that Paul wrote about, even though it was with the backdrop of pre- the present-day distress, was rooted in the present-day distress. For example, he goes all the way back to the teachings of Jesus and alludes to how couples who are married need to, need to stay married. They don't need to use the present-day distress as a means to, to divorce. And so in the same way, if something is happening in someone's life and you know, we're not talking about anything morally. We're not talking about any anything like that. But just there's a lot of stuff happening in your life. Well, I'm going to use this to as as means to divorce my spouse. Well, no, no. Jesus Jesus taught that you don't need to be doing that. And there's there's greater commands. There's greater principles. There's greater ideologies at play of how you should keep your marriage intact unless there's moral grounds to uh, to dissolve it. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, I just think that really the whole Bible has to be looked upon as, as, as a, something that is not written to us, but something that is written for us. And not just with a topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but any topic. All we're trying to do is our best to figure out how can we grow our relationship with the Lord. And in any given situation, how do I need to be handling the situation that I'm in based upon what I do know uh, about Jesus? And without getting into a whole nother lecture here. That gets more into the the Christocentric ideology that once again, I'm putting another, I'm putting in like 50 plugs for my book, but that is ultimately if, if our faith is in Jesus, the Bible itself, Jesus himself and the writers who, who follow Jesus all say we can only understand the scripture by knowing who Jesus was. And so the only way we can properly understand uh, scripture and interpret it is through the lenses of Jesus Christ. Well, since Jesus didn't address every single, every single conceivable topic that there there is, we have to look at what he did address, and we have to look at what he did say, and based upon what he did say, how would he handle 
dot, 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 X, Y, Z, any given situation. And that's really should be our, our backdrop on how we are applying any passage is through the lenses of how Jesus Christ lived on earth. And I think that, dude, that's exactly right. And what makes that such a scary prospect for so many people is it's, it's gray area. You don't have a passage that you can go to that you can refer to as some sort of case law to make your case. I mean, there are some parts of the Bible that can function that way, but in general, whenever you look at the scriptures through a Christocentric lens, it, it doesn't really fall into place as neatly as it does when you approach it from a legalistic perspective. And this question is really, and if, if the listener that's listening to this, that wrote it is listening, I, I apologize if this offends you, I'm not trying to, but it seems like that this question is really still rooted in that legalistic mentality. It's this idea of, well, how do we apply the law if the present distress isn't here? And when you look at it through a Christocentric lens, and it, it changes everything. It, it really does. So I, I like your comments on that. I, th I think that answers that question well. Um, the next question comes from one of our re uh, listeners, not readers, but listeners. If marriage, if, <laughs> if marital abuse falls under Exodus 21 as a scriptural justification for divorce, does that only include physical abuse? What about emotional abuse? And from my understanding, I would I would say that it includes both physical and emotional abuse. Yeah, I would agree with that too. And and mainly, primarily, the reason I would agree with that is first of all, when you look at Exodus twenty one seven through eleven, there's there's three distinct categories listed there in verses nine and ten. Uh, if ten, uh, verse ten, for example, it says, "If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food." her clothing, or her marital rights. And that Hebrew phrase or word there that, that's translated marital rights has been hotly debated. But the rabbis of the time and in the first century as well agreed that that included emotional and not just physical, but there, there were ba they basically the rabbis broke it up into two different forms of neglect, and that's physical neglect and emotional neglect. And so, based upon Exodus twenty one uh, eight through ten, specifically verse ten, and based upon how the rabbis understood it, and the fact that Jesus never corrected them, Paul never corrected them. If anything, their their silence would be affirmation based upon the context at that time, I believe that's my argument anyway. And then you go to first Corinthians seven. Uh, there's, there's no reason to believe that you can read the sermon on the Mount and think it's only the physical. I, I mean, Jesus whole point is if, if you have hate in your heart, even if you don't beat somebody up, you, you still have murdered them in your heart. Uh, so yeah. if someone is being emotionally abused, emotionally neglected, Jesus teaches that's no different than physical. If someone is is uh, emotionally neglecting or abusing someone and they continue to do that and they're not trying to change, they're not seeking help, and that's something that continues and that's a, a factor in their relationship, I don't see anything different from the, the emotional to the physical, especially with what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, and in a lot of cases, emotional abuse can be as dangerous worse sometimes, and as yeah. damaging and worse sometimes in physical abuse, because, you know, part of that's a process called gaslighting. And I don't know if you've heard of gaslighting, but what that is, is it's a psychological concept in which the abuser basically convinces the abused that they're going crazy 
or that they somehow deserve what they're getting. It, it's a, a shift in the narrative that exists between the two parties in which the abuser augments or works and seeks to undermine the abused sense of reality and what reality is. And so what ends up happening is, is that the abused ends up thinking that either they deserve it or they're just as bad as their abuser is, or they are as bad as the abuser says they are. And they end up in a mental prison, quote unquote. That's what some of the, some of the different writers that have written on this subject state in a lot of cases, emotional abuse can be worse. And I think, Mm. I believe that God recognizes that that's the case. I believe God recognized that that's the case. And he provided a means of escape and redemption and a way to become whole once again in a good relationship after the fact. So I I agree with what you said. I I think especially in light of what Jesus taught about the heart being the root of those issues, it's absolutely it does. Well, and what makes it difficult, I think, for most people who are experiencing something that's more emotional than physical is... If you're going through physical abuse or if, if there's been adultery committed or whatever, that's easy to point to and say, this this happened. You know, if, 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 I, if I have a black eye, I can point to the black eye and say, look at what you did. If, if you're if you've you know ran around on on me or somebody, you know, you can look, look and say, look at what you did. Um, this is clearly something that is evidential to the to the point that you aren't treating me the way that you're supposed to. But with emotional abuse, it's it's harder to do that because there are no physical black eyes to point to. There is no actual adultery occurring. And so it's easy for one spouse to say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're just blowing all these things out of proportion. And it's easy to manipulate in those situations. And as I said before, I'm not a licensed counselor, but I have counseled. I have counseled with counselors when I brought in counselors who uh, were actually licensed and it was people I was involved with and we kind of all talked together. And it's interesting to me how manipulative people can be when it comes to emotional abuse. And you can get people thinking that they are going crazy, like you just mentioned, because there's nothing tangible. They can't point to anything tangible and say, well, look at what, you know, well, well have they hurt you? No. Well, they haven't ever hit me. Well, have they done this? Well, no, they've never done that. Well, have they cheated? No, they've never cheated, but they've done this, this, this. Well, are you sure you're just not blowing that out of proportion? And then, well, maybe I am blowing it out of proportion. <laughs> you know, you, you can exactly. really, you can really be uh, manipulated in those types of situations. So, uh, ultimately, I think it's very difficult to, to know where to draw that line. Um, and it's going to be a case by case basis. Yes, I mean, it's yeah. not anything you can make a hard and fast rule on doing so would be legalistic after all. But I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it's, it's one of those things that has to be considered on a case by case basis. And I, I, I don't think you could be more correct on that if, if you tried brother. So anything else for that question about Exodus 21, emotional abuse that you want to share? No, I'm sure I could say more stuff, but we'll we'll (laughs) let that that be that for now. (laughs) Touche, touche. All right, this next question is a doozy. This is a big one, and I think we may end up getting a little personal on this one because this one one hurts. This one hurts my heart to read about this one. Um, The situation I'm struggling with has to do with someone I know. After years of marriage, my friend. Now you're reading. You're reading the question, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. This isn't me. For you listeners, this okay. isn't me. This is the question. Okay, so the question is: the situation I'm struggling with has to do with someone I know. After years of marriage, my friend divorced his wife. His justification in saying he had a right and was not sinning 
And what he did is because his ex-wife suffers from mental illness after her first pregnancy to the extent that about four years before the divorce, she had to be hospitalized for a few days on suicide watch. And he said she had been neglecting his needs sexually and emotionally. I know you talked extensively about the neglected, but where does the in sickness and health part of a marriage covenant come into play? It seems to me, based on your explanation of being neglected, that it would be easy for some to use that justification for their divorce. What about the verse in Matthew 5, 23 and 24 that talks about leaving the altar if you remember there is something unsettled between you and a brother? Now, I'll just say I really don't understand in this question what the Matthew 5 part has to do with that. You may have some more insight on that and how that might apply than I do. But to me, that doesn't really... That doesn't really apply here. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. But dude, this is, wow, this is heavy. And this kind of hits close to home for me because I've had some experience with this topic in a way that, you know, that, that might elucidate some, some in this, but yeah, this is, this is a heavy question. There's a lot of facets to it. That's for sure. There is, and we're only is really, we're only really getting one side of it too. I mean, based on the information that we have about this situation, you know, we'll, we'll try to answer this, but you know, there are always two sides to every story and it's, it's hard to really know and to be able to definitively answer, okay, well, X, Y, Z or whatever else. But even so, based on this information, we'll, we'll try to do justice to this, which it sounds like a terrible situation to in no matter how you slice it. Yeah. And when, when you deal with a situation like this, it's always good to go back to the principles to say, okay, first of all, what are we operating under? And I, I want to say this delicately, but just because someone can abuse truth doesn't negate truth. Yeah. And so the, the fact that we are arguing that Exodus 21, 7 through 11, we believe uh, is still, a, still a, an authorized moral reason to, to be able to divorce and, and marry another is something that we believe as rooted in, in the historicity and the Jewish law. We believe it's something that is in the nature of God himself and Jesus Christ. It's something that we believe Paul alludes to in first Corinthians seven. So there's no doubt. However, that being said, there's no doubt that people are going to abuse that and say, well, if that's the case, then I'm just going to begin to point every little thing out and say, well, this is neglect and this is neglect and this is neglect and this is neglect. And to me, you go back into legalism when you do that, because yeah. the, the point of any what we call exception clauses is not to give an out to, to just remarry because you, 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 you're done with the marriage. It's because the the marriage is no longer there. It's because there there is no reconciliation available. It's it's not to to rush out of a marriage. It is if you have tried and you realize that that marriage is no longer working, even though you're trying to do everything you can. Perhaps adultery has been committed against you. Perhaps your spouse has left you. Whatever the the case may be, those are the reasons that there are exceptions given. It's to protect, and it's still never God's ideal because sin is not God's ideal. But because sin yeah. happens, God works through sin, and uh, God, is, God God puts things in place. And so, you know, Lee, this situation is is difficult. Um, and as you brought up, not knowing all the details, it's it's hard to give someone a pass. It's hard to to look at this the way it was worded and say, yeah, this this guy's okay because honestly, 
I, I believe you can make the argument the opposite way, that if your spouse was going through a about a depression or something had happened that, you know, here it, it was, it, it looks like, okay, after she had their child, but let's say maybe someone's um, family member died, maybe their mother or father died and they went into depression for a period of time or whatever it may be. And you're saying, well, you know, how dare them? They're not giving me sex every night because they're sad that, that <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I, that's not really what I'm seeing in Exodus 21. You know, that's that would actually, I would I believe a case could be made that if you decide to leave, that could be neglect <laughs> because yeah. because yeah. now you're not attending to your spouse's needs at that point in time. Now, I believe that there's a lot of different scenarios here because to me, I always look at it as, is the person, are they done? Are they done? Are they are they now saying because of whatever's happened to them, they're done with the marriage, they're not going to try? Or are they getting help? Are they going and seeking medical uh, guidance? And, and are they going to see a doctor? Are they getting, uh, are, are they getting, are they trying? Is, is, there, is, is their relationship there? It, regardless of if they're living up at that time to everything you want them to live up to, they're going through a difficult time. So are you working with them? Is, is this about the marriage or is this about, selfishness because you're just, you don't, you don't want to handle or have to deal with your spouse going through a difficult time. So to me, this just sounds like, once again, I don't know whoever is reading this or listening to this, we're not trying to justify or condemn a situation, but if, if you're saying simply because your spouse went through a difficult time and you felt like your needs were neglected during that time because they were depressed or uh, whatever it may be, and specifically here suicidal, it's it doesn't sound very Christ-like that that would be a justifiable reason to to no. leave your spouse, in my opinion. Well, and the thing is, is anytime you take, I'm reading kind of into this question, like if depression came about because of having a baby, you're talking about postpartum depression. And I am definitely not comfortable with calling that a justifiable reason for divorce based on neglect because depression's powerful, man. It is so powerful. And I don't know if you've ever dealt with clinical depression yourself. If you, if you've ever dealt with personal experience, I have, and it, it, you change who you are in those States. I know Kim, my wife, after our first baby, the birth didn't really go the way she wanted it to. And I hope she doesn't mind me talking about this in this episode. I didn't ask her about it beforehand. So baby, if you're listening and you're mad at me, I'm sorry. Just remember I'm taking you to Mexico. So don't be really mad at me forever. It's, I love you and don't be angry. But after, after we had our first baby, is this justifiable reasons for her to leave you now? You know? <laughs> <laughs> this isn't neglect. This isn't abuse. It is. Please baby. Stay with me. I hit the jackpot with that woman, dude. I'm telling you, but she went through a little bit of postpartum depression herself and it was, it was hard. It was hard. And Anytime you're dealing with hormones, man, it's, it's powerful. I have a familial history of divorce or divorce, a familial history of depression in my family. Um, I know that, um, my parents have both dealt with it before I have dealt with it personally. My siblings have dealt with it. My, one of my sisters more so than others, but I personally have dealt with it whenever we first got in. And there's two different kinds of, of depression. Depression runs the gamut. And one of the issues with this is, is that, Mental health issues and depression, especially within Christendom, especially within evangelical circles, it's often it's it's grossly misunderstood. It is misappropriated, and people they're like, "Well, just quit being depressed, just snap out of it, just change your thoughts, start thinking happy things." 
You know, focus your mind on those things above. You know, you just quit being anxious. The Bible says, be anxious for nothing. Just put your faith and trust in Jesus. Oh, well, why didn't I think of that before? Oh, well, Are that's you all worried? I Stop worrying. Everything's going to be okay. Stop just stop it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I remember whenever we very first started our practice and I took some advice from people that I thought knew what they were talking about. It was bad advice. We ended up going really deep into debt and the business didn't take off like what it was supposed to, like what these people had, had stated that it would and what I could expect to make. And we were making about a tenth of what they had said that we could expect to make if we utilize these practices and everything else. Anyway, I'm looking at our finances, my first year of practice, and I'm thinking we're going to be bankrupt by April. You know, it's I'm, I'm about to lose everything. I mean, at that point, I wasn't paying myself. We were living off of what Kim made do a massage, which he wasn't doing that often anyway, because we had just had McKinley. We were living off what I made teaching, which wasn't that much. And it was a matter of every month thinking, okay, which bill can we be late on this month? You know, the tag was out on my car and I couldn't afford the $38 to renew my tag. It was either I could buy the tag or I could buy fuel to drive to work. And I would take back roads from where we were living at the time to work so that I wouldn't have any cops seeing my tag and wouldn't get pulled over and have a, a, a ticket to pay on top of that. I finally decided to just sleep at the office for a few nights so that I wouldn't be burning the gas so I could afford to go buy the tag. And that led to a depression. You know, here I am putting my life on the line, going deep into debt, going to school and spending a huge amount of time going through college, then going through graduate school, then postgraduate school to get my doctorate in chiropractic. You know, I go into all this debt to start the business and I'm barely making ends meet. I mean, I can make more slinging tires at the tire plant or loading trucks at the, at the warehouse than I could do in this, you know, here I am, I'm a failure. Am I able to provide the needs of my family? Am I able to put food on the table? And dude, that affected me. I became suicidal at that point in my life. Wow. I mean, there was, it, it was a, it was a dark, dark time for, for Kim and I. Well, I remember but, you telling me, you know, you know, I've talked about that in, in times past how, cause I know that really affected your faith too, right? Oh, it did. It Dur- affected it. To a tre- it affected it to a tremendous degree because here I am doing all the right things. And I still operated under that legalistic ideology that if I do all the right things, then I have God's favor. And if I have God's favor, well, God will bless me. And there was one tree on the south side of the road that I took on those back roads. And I had to take out a life insurance policy before the bank would loan me money to get the business going. And I could, I couldn't help but think it's on a straightaway. If I get up to about a hundred miles an hour and I just unbuckle my seatbelt and make for that tree. Well, the ins- life insurance policy wouldn't pay out if it was suicide, but the case could be made. It was an accident. And maybe then all this debt would paid off, be paid off. And then my wife and my new daughter would be covered. They'd be taken care of. And then fast forward a few years later, and this specifically relates to postpartum depression. I became a real jerk about five years ago, about six years ago. And I was really hard to live with. I was, I would say that I was verbally abusive. I would just go off. I've always had a a kind of a hot temper and it's cooled off a lot since being married and getting older and more mature. But at that point I would go off at the drop of a hat over the stupidest things. And it would make me mad that I was reacting that way. I had no idea why I was reacting that way. It, It was at the point where Kim was afraid to leave me home with the kids. 
She was afraid to leave me home. with it. She knew that I would never hurt them physically, but she was afraid that I would yell at them or that I would just go off on them or just, you know, just be vicious and mean. And she was, she was having to be the buffer. And she finally told me, she said, look, I can't keep living this way. Something's got to give. There's something wrong. You need to get help. And naturally being the man, I don't need no help. I'm okay. I'm fine. <laughs> well, it turns out my hormones were all over the place, dude. My hormones were shot. Hormones are powerful. They're incredibly powerful. And I've, you know, had to get treatment for that. I had to get treatment for that. And dude, it was amazing because having my hormones checked and seeing just how out of skew they were, I was making almost 10 times the amount of estrogen that a man should make. And my testosterone was way, way too low. But once all that was under control, brother, it was like flipping a switch. Yeah. I, I, it was, it was all over. So anyway, all that to say, I got, like I said, I got kind of personal there. But whenever you have postpartum depression, you're dealing with hormones, man. And those hormones are incredibly powerful. You have different receptors in your body that those hormones attach to and those hormones exert in action. I mean, there's a reason why women who go through menopause are stereotypically referred to as like these crazy lions that have hot flashes all the time or these lionesses. You know, you don't want to mess with a woman who's going through menopause. And women who, you know, are on their monthly cycle, people, you know, like it's, it's a classic PMS is one of those classic stereotypical things. You have this woman at war or she's, you know, you don't want to cross her. I guess she's on her cycle right now. Dude, hormones are powerful. And whenever you have something like that at play, I am, I am really uncomfortable saying that it's a justifiable reason for divorce unless that leads to dangerous behavior or harmful behavior on the part of the person who's affected. I mean, if you have someone who's not really doing anything harmful, they're just maybe turning into a jerk or maybe they're just not, they're just not, they're not willing to put out. They're not willing to be sexually active, or maybe they're not keeping the house as clean as you want it to be. That's one thing. But if you have someone who's going out and sleeping around and they're going to, you know, use their mental illness as a crutch for that. Or you have someone who like me was a real jerk and maybe the yelling and the screaming and the fits over stupid things devolves into physical violence, or maybe that continues and there's a complete lack of willingness on my part to get help. Well, then it may be justifiable, but we really don't know if that's the case in this specific situation. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say thank you for sharing that story. I, I hope people who are listening at home will be able to to appreciate the courage it takes to to really go into detail uh, as you did about something very personal that that would be easy just to ignore, just to to not talk about or let people know. And that that's just a side that's, point here. That's one thing. That, that's that's what gets rid of the stigma, dude. That's yeah. how we move beyond that. That's how we're able to really help people get the help they need is when you remove the stigma. I'm not ashamed to talk about this. It's a dark time and I'm ashamed of who I was then, but I'm so thankful for God's grace and for the people in my life that God put there that helped lead me out of that, that helped me become a better person and a better Christian and a better father and a better husband. Well, and, and, and that's really, you know, vulnerability is something that is, is missing among so many Christians, and especially with the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I, uh, I heard someone say this, and I thought it was a good point. They said, we've gotten to, to, to a certain point in the Christian world right now where instead of being open and honest and vulnerable with marital problems, 
people are just trying to point the finger so that they can they can say that they're the innocent and that they're not the guilty. And so people are all constantly trying to draw lines and 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 really kind of boost their own resume to say, look, in this marriage, I was the better one. And that's none of that is is Christ-like. That's that's not the point. That's not what Jesus is wanting. And Jesus is wanting vulnerability. Jesus is wanting honesty. And, you know, as you pointed out, you you got help. You got help. And and so many people, yeah. either they're ashamed to get help because they believe that this is something that they can do on their own, especially when you when you get into to depression. I've, I've dealt with a lot of anxiety in my life, and it's something that oftentimes you don't even want to talk to anybody about it because you're afraid yeah. of what is what is someone going to say? Is someone, you know, am, am, am I going to be judged by this or whatever? And so instead of talking to people and trying to seek out help, people do nothing. They do nothing. And the longer they do nothing, the worse that it gets, believing that if I do nothing, for whatever reason, this is this is going to change. And, you know, that's why I, I really am a big believer in getting counseling. Um, I, I, honestly, if I had the money, I'd probably go see a counselor every day of my life, you know, if I, <laughs> if, uh, if I was able to afford it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. Sure. Well, I, I'm a big I'm a big fan of, of Alabama football being from Alabama and uh, Nick Saban, who pretty much everybody worships in Alabama if you're an Alabama football fan. And he he goes and sees a counselor every day. As a psychologist, he goes and he says, you know, I just have to talk through things. And and uh, that in and of itself, I think, has helped people because they're like, look, if, if a guy is successful, Nick Saban, if he realizes he needs counseling, I mean, we all need counseling. We all need, at times, we all need professional help. I mean, we understand we go to the gym and we work out because we need to strengthen our physical bodies. Well, what about our, our, our mental body? What about our mind? Or what are we doing to, to work on that? And so... You know, you you brought up the situation that certainly people can take advantage of that and use that yeah. as a justification because I've I've seen that on the other end where people have acted in ways that are are unchristlike and uh, even to the point of of committing adultery multiple times and and their response was well I'm just going through right now a difficult time and and this is my out and my spouse needs to understand and I, I really shouldn't be held accountable uh, during this time in my life because of the stresses I'm going through well. You know, to me, that kind of moves the discussion into something that's a completely different realm because it's one thing to be going through a situation. It's another to refuse help. And and that's what when I talk to anybody struggling with with these situations is when you realize you are going through depression or anxiety or, or uh, especially suicidal thoughts, you need to talk to somebody. You need you have a responsibility to get help. And and that's something that a lot of people sometimes refuse to do and other people they will use that as an excuse and to to do things that they shouldn't do and so this is such just a difficult you know that's why it's hard for me on the surface i want to say look this this the guy you know this guy almost seems like a jerk <laughs> i mean he, you know it's it's like i can't imagine if my wife was going through depression and she wasn't giving me sex and i'm like well i'm going to leave you because you're not giving me sex i mean i, I I, I can't imagine now, you know, once again, I don't know the details. I don't know how long these things took place. I don't know. And, and then we're just saying sex. I mean, I, apparently there was, there was more to it than that, but I, yeah. I, I don't know all the details, but so that's why I don't want to be too harsh on this man either. I think the question though, um, cause I went back to the email and, um, and, and there was more context in the, in the email. I just didn't put that because there was some personal things that the, that the, the writer who wrote in had put, and I told her that I wouldn't include all of those things. But, 
you know, with Matthew 5, 23 and 24, the, the woman said who wrote this question that her main concern is that this man she knows, he's not showing a penitent attitude. So I don't even think at this point it's so much now he's divorced her. It's that he just really doesn't feel like he was he was wrong at all. He, he really isn't sorry at all. And I'll be the first to tell you that, you know, going through divorce like I did, and, you know, you got personal, so I'll get personal too. This was something that really weighed heavily on my heart because um, my my first wife, we, we just really never had a good marriage. She had an extremely tough upbringing. And honestly, we should have never gotten married to begin with. That in of itself is something that I have asked God for forgiveness on multiple, <laughs> multiple, multiple times. <laughs> and, uh, you know, something that my ex-wife, after we got married, had even talked about. I mean, she said, look, Kevin, I should have never married you and, and, you know, she she cheated on me. She committed adultery. She had another relationship. And, uh, you know, it was something that I look back oftentimes and I just have asked God for for forgiveness because I realized I wasn't a good, I won't say a good husband. I think I was a good, a good husband. I mean, I don't know how you really define that. I'm not going to sit here and say I was a, the best husband in the world, you know, because I realized that I have my own problems. And I look back oftentimes in guilt thinking, well, what if I'd have done this differently? Maybe she wouldn't have cheated. Or what if what if I'd have done this? Or what if I'd have said this? Or what if I'd have, you know, whatever. And, and you kind of wreck your brain. And, and all I do is can just ask God for forgiveness. And I've even asked her after the divorce, even though, once again, I do believe that I had a, a lawful, justifiable, moral reason to divorce. And I've even talked to her about it, about it afterwards, because uh, I have a very heavy conscience and I talked to her after we divorced. And I'm like, you know, I'm sorry if, you know, for, I know I could have been better. And she's like, look, Kevin, you're, you know, there's nothing you really could have done that would have changed anything. Cause I shouldn't have married you. And I found this other man and, you know, and that kind of gave me a little bit of uh, solace. Yeah. Yeah, it did. You know, because I looked at pornography during our marriage. Um, she, she told me that that she, she didn't care. <laughs> you know, she did tell me that that <laughs> didn't matter to her, but as a legalist at that time, I'm thinking, well, do I have a right? You know, does that somehow disqualify me or whatever? And so, you know, I even talked to her about that later. And, uh, cause I was like, look, I'm sorry for that. And I, I, you know, could have been a much better husband. And I went to her and, and she just told me, Hey, I've, you know, forgive you, but that's not why we divorced. And, and so I, I, I really look for penitent people. And even yeah. when, because this, this is where instead of trying to say that someone was a hundred percent innocent or a hundred percent guilty, I look at it and say, could the marriage have continued? And, and, and the bottom line is even in my first marriage, that's what I tried to do. You know, it, it, this is something that I wanted to continue, even, even amongst cheating. If this is something you really want to, want to continue doing, let's try. But there was no, there was no desire there. And so obviously if there's no desire. You no longer have that anymore. And so I don't even look at the idea of adultery as something of looking at your spouse saying, well, you've committed it. We've had this great marriage, but you went out and had a lapse of judgment. Now I'm going to put you away. I don't even think that's the will of God. I think that that exception clause is there to give not a a knee-jerk reaction of, oh, well, you know what? I've loved you all these years, but now you cheated and boom, I'm just going to put you away. But to to try to work if there is if there is a possibility, even there. Now, once again, I'm not going to be legalistic and say, well, you have to spend a certain amount of time working on your marriage before to make sure. But because I know some people that's their marriage had been bad for a long time. And that was more of the just kind of the fruits of that than it was anything else. But ultimately, with the question and in this, the, the woman is talking about um, 
let's see, what passage does she bring up there in Matthew chapter five, uh, verse 23 and 24, that if you have something against your, if you, if you know that your, your brother has something against you, you need to go and make it right. The problem with the situation that this, this question gives and this woman gives is that it doesn't sound like the man thinks he did anything deserving to go and ask for forgiveness. And that's the biggest problem because I'll be the first now to be like, man, I will go and make it right with anybody I have to, you know, like whatever yeah. I needed to go. And because, because I realize what a piece of garbage I am. I mean, I really do. And, and, <laughs> and, and used to, I used to think I was just the, the best thing ever. I was this great Christian for God. God needed me. And then I realized my, my righteousness really is like filthy rags. And let's be honest, very few of us have much righteousness to begin with. Right. So, I mean, yeah. we're even on our best day, we pretty much stink. And so just that the, the idea that this guy that she talks about doesn't have a penitent attitude to me, that's a, that's a problem. That's a problem yeah. because I don't think anybody who has gone through a divorce, even when they had moral grounds can say my spouse was hundred percent to blame and I was hundred percent innocent. To me, that's an arrogant thing to say um, yeah. because, you know, certainly there is no perfect person. So if there's no perfect person, we all do make mistakes, but the emphasis should always be on trying to keep that marriage together. But if for whatever reason it can't be, then then that's when we we are talking about a different scenario. But it should never get to that point until we've exhausted our resources of trying to make things work. I would even say in the midst of of abandonment and adultery and those types of things. Well, and I agree with you. I think one of those areas in which it doesn't work any longer and divorce is the only recourse would be in a case of abuse that just doesn't stop. And it just perpetually goes on for weeks, months into years in a situation like that. Yeah. Get out. I mean, you can choose to stay in, but I think especially if children are involved, the impetus is upon the person being abused. Get out. I I really believe that as well. Um, Anyway, any other comments on this one? We we kind of got real on that one. We got a little raw with it. Yeah, well, and I'm and and I hope people realize that we're just trying to be real. I mean, we're not we're not acting like we have all the answers. We're just trying to be as open and honest as possible. And you know, one thing just going back because the only experience that I guess anybody have is has is their own. And you know, I look back at mine because uh, in my first marriage, we weren't even married for three years. And my, uh, my first wife, it was the, I mean, the, the marriage was horrible with within the first couple of months, my ex-wife was telling me she didn't love me, that she regretted, you know, marrying me. And so the whole thing was just really rocky. Um, I'm surprised, honestly, that she didn't, she did have a relationship before, um, it was almost three years, you know, before we finally divorced and everything came out. But it, it's one of those things where very few people know, the ins and outs and, and the situation of what people are going through. And I always just encourage people to, you know, try to build relationships with folks so that you can try to talk to people about problems before they spiral out of control. Um, what, what ends up happening in most situations of people who are struggling is they keep it to themselves and they're, they're ashamed. And it's, and even with, with us, you know, I was a preacher. So the last thing I wanted to tell people is my wife's telling me she doesn't love me and we have a horrible marriage. I mean, I, I wanted things to look good. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, so I, I, I think that if I could give anybody a piece of advice too, is if you are struggling, don't wait until it gets really bad to do something about it. Go ahead and start trying to do things about it. Because typically by the time a divorce occurs, 
it's not like all of a sudden it just happened. There was a lot there that built up to that point. And yeah. uh, I tell this to a lot of people who, you know, if they've never experienced it or, or really haven't been involved in a divorce directly or indirectly that, you know, by the time the divorce takes place, there was a divorce a long time before that. <laughs> there was, there was, yeah. there were things the marriage that had already place. died. Yes. Yeah. The yes. marriage had already died. The divorce just formalized what had already happened. So, so don't wait, you know, don't wait until, until things, um, and that's what most people think. Well, things are just going to get better. Things are not going to get better. And th- if you are in a bad marriage right now, whether it's because of the, your fault or because of your spouse's fault, or perhaps even a combination of both, if you continue doing what you're doing, th- things are not going to get better. They're only going to get worse. And, you know, you talked about how amazing Kim is and that that's, I'm so thankful that I found Bethany, um, you know, several years later after um, the divorce and everything, you know, uh, me and Bethany met and got married and we uh, it's, it's God has, has brought me to such a different place than where I was. And, you know, I've even been able to have good conversations with my, my ex-wife. I've, I've, center materials about his MDR stuff. I'm like, look, you know, you can remarry and, and, uh, you know, you, you, you have redemption and, and, and freedom. And, um, you know, this is, this is something that, that, you know, I want you to know because her and I both were very legalistic. And, uh, so it was during that time. And so it, it was just, it's, it's very freeing to know the, what, what the Bible actually does, what I'm very now convinced the Bible does teach on this issue. And just to people who are listening to this, who are going through a difficult time, by the way, I talked to a guy last week who's going through a divorce and uh, they just divorced a couple of weeks ago and, and he is in uh, really a very much depressed mode right now. And if people are listening to this and they're, they're thinking, you know, there's no hope, there's no future. That's Satan talking. There is a hope. You have a future. Uh, you, 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 your life is not over. Uh, God can use this for good. You can be stronger. You can be better. I mean, I I hate what happened, but I'm thankful that God allowed me to go through what I did because it brought me to Bethany. It brought me to ultimately freedom. It allowed me to study this uh, up and down as well. So um, anyway, that's kind of getting off there and doing a little motivational speaking there. But I just want people to know, man, that, that, that they're loved. You do have a future. You know, it's there's no such thing as trapped, um, even though Satan wants you to believe that in Christ, there's freedom. And I hope people can find that. Absolutely, brother. That's extremely well said. We have one more question that we'll answer and then we'll call it a wrap. We'll wrap up our series on marriage, divorce and remarriage. And man, it's been a fun ride and we'll be getting into some new things. But before we do, we have one more question that requires an answer. So this <laughs> one more, and this is one it, man. More. This is it. Yep. This is it. So the question reads, what about when there is sin on both sides? What if a husband is abusive physically and emotionally, a drug addict who refuses to get help, barely even willing to work. Wow. This guy's a real scoundrel <laughs> and also not a believer on top of all that. The wife commits adultery. This sounds like one of those I'm asking for a friend questions. <laughs> yeah, asking for a friend. The wife. And if you're listening, we're not making light of your situation. It's just, it's like, wow, we're really painting this dude. He's he's a real scoundrel. The wife commits adultery and asks for a divorce. Does she have a responsibility to reconcile? Does the responsibility to reconcile only apply when both are believers? That's a really good question. Yeah, well, and, and th- no disrespect to the question at all. No, I, I don't even know who wrote this, but no, no disrespect at all to the question. 
this is riddled with with legalities. Uh, th- these questions are are this you know there's a handful of questions and there's a lot of legalities at play here, and that's what we have to back away from. God is not concerned with legalities; He's concerned about relationship. And in legalities, oftentimes that's the very thing that can hurt and destroy relationships. And relationship is the very thing that oftentimes can destroy uh, legalities in a good way. In a good way. So, to to begin with, let's let's kind of let's kind of answer that last question first, because I feel like that's probably about the only question that is not so much legalistic. And that is, does the responsibility to reconcile only apply when both are believers? I don't believe so. Um, most people are going to point to First Corinthians seven ten and eleven, and then try to try to uh, parallel that to 1 Corinthians 7.15. But once again, just because something is not explicitly mentioned in a text does not mean that that's that, that it shouldn't be understood within that backdrop. I think, I think reconciliation is always, 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 always God's, God's will, I, ultimate will. I believe, I believe that is always what God would want to see is when a divorce takes place to, for, for that, marriage to to get back to where it was for for that that couple to to remarry one another. I firmly believe that that is what God desires. So whether it's believer, non-believer, believer believer, I, I do believe that reconciliation is always ultimately what would would be God's will. The, that That's that would the be the aim. That would be the goal. So you're saying that reconciliation is what God wants. I, I don't know if you made that clear enough. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, there's going to be people who say, you know what, Kevin doesn't care about marriages. That That's, that's still going to be said. <laughs> yeah, it will be. And that's it's unfortunate that that's the case. But usually people that make that case, they either didn't listen to any of it or they just have an ax to grind anyway, and they're operating on a basis of assumption. But I, I think your analysis of this question is is kind of spot on. What about when there's sin on both sides? What if a husband is X, Y, Z? Well, what if a husband commits adultery and then the wife gets mad and she goes and commits adultery to get revenge? You know, what if a wife is neglecting the home, not because of postpartum depression? What if she's neglecting the home because, you know, she just is lazy and she just doesn't want to clean up after the kids and you've got, you know, dirty diapers all over the place and you've got other things going on and she's just willfully not doing it. You know, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if you could throw any, any. Hey, what if the man's not cleaning the diapers? You know what I'm saying? What if he's not cleaning the poops? Yeah. What if the man ain't loading the dishwasher, taking out the trash, grooming the dog and cleaning the gutters? You know, and that's the thing. You could throw any hypothetical at this that you want, but at its core, the question is, what if there is sin on both sides? And if we're well, going to be frank about most divorces that occur, there usually is sin on both sides. If we're going to be frank about it and we're going to be truthful about it, that's usually the case. Is it what the scriptures would call a scripturally justifiable sin? Maybe, maybe not. But even so, when you try to drill it down to that point, you tend to lose the narrative and you begin to focus on the legalities and the technicalities to the expense of reconciliation and the relationship itself. Yeah, well, and, and this this loses, as you said, the the focal the focal point that Jesus was trying to bring it back to. Because first of all, there is sin on both sides. Um, you know, I just spent a little little time myself talking about that, even in my own uh, marriage and divorce. How there there is always two sinners in every marriage, and so that's why I really 
I, I guess this is going to seem really hypocritical because we've been using the term guilty party and innocent party this whole time. But, you know, that that in of itself is kind Those of are uh, legal terms, man. I they, mean, they, they really are and terms that are used in this discussion. And, 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 and there is don't get me wrong, because I do believe that ultimately in any marriage, there is a, a either one or both parties that says I'm done with it. And by, by definition, if there is not moral grounds, then, yeah, that that would be they would be guilty in that particular situation. But there's always going to be sin on on both sides because we're sinners. But so there is no such thing because that because that's what I want to stress, too, is that when we talk about neglect and when we talk about abandonment, I, I don't want people to now start looking for those things. And they're like, oh, you know what? Now come to think about it after hearing what Kevin Lee had to say, you know, my, my spouse, actually, they could be doing a lot more for me. That That's not what we're talking about <laughs> that's here. That's the last thing we want to yes. have happen. And so, you know, we're trying to help marriages stay together, not give more justification for them to 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 fall apart. And that's that's exactly what Jesus taught. Jesus wasn't giving more instructions to tear marriages apart. He was trying to give instruction to keep marriages together, which is another reason why... Uh, repentance does not include further divorce because Jesus isn't trying to rip more people apart. He's trying to keep more people together. And that's that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to keep more people together, not rip them apart. And so I would say when you look at this th- th- this comment here, if you have a guy who who is physically abusive, basically, for lack of better words, um, a deadbeat, you know, and I'm not being ugly there, but my goodness, yeah, if, he's yeah. a, is, if he's physically abusive, is, if he's emotionally abusive, is he a drug addict? I mean, it doesn't even work. I mean, that this this I don't know if this is a hypothetical situation, but I would <laughs> marry someone like someone like that to begin you with. Know, but, it, and, it uh, but you know, if that's the case, and then the wife goes out and commits adultery, here's the thing that I always say: always to, to a, a wrong someone doing something wrong never justifies somebody else doing something wrong ever. So yeah. no matter how bad somebody is, it never gives you a right. To sin, you can never say I sinned because this is what my spouse did. Because what you're doing is you're equalizing your sin. You're trying to say, well, because they did it, I I can do it. So, in this case, what the wife should have done, in my opinion, is she should have divorced. She should have divorced him on scriptural grounds, and and then she would have been able to to go out and marry someone else. I would say the problem with this whole scenario is whoever is involved in this sounds unfortunately like they've been influenced by legalism because the wife probably believes she didn't have grounds, even though I believe she did. And so therefore she just went out and found another man anyway, when I believe she would have had grounds based upon everything that this person said, if this is an unbeliever who's abandoned her, he's physically abusing her, you know, it's drug addict. He's not trying to get help. He doesn't care about the relationship. All those different things would definitely fall under Exodus 21, 7 through 11. So I would say that the wife should have, first and foremost, realized that there was an out to begin with. And so, you know, this this scenario is just, man, it's riddled with just so much legalistic thinking. It's riddled with so much sin on both sides. So to answer the question, first of all, somebody else's sin never justifies your sin, first and foremost. But second of all, um, when you get into these hypotheticals like this, this is just where if if I was involved in this situation, I don't know if the divorce had already occurred or what, but I would just be asking God to forgive me. I, I would be I would be looking at my sins, and that's even what I did in my in my last divorce. 
is I, instead of just telling God how great I am and that I had moral grounds, I was letting him know, God, I, I, I was not perfect. I had a lot of issues and I still have issues. And please help me. Please forgive me. Please, please, please realize that I'm a sinner and be merciful to me. And, and, you know, be asking God, always have that penitent spirit, always have that penitent heart. And so that, that's kind of what I would, what I would say about that. Awesome. Well, I don't think I could have said it any better myself. I think that's right on the mark. And with that, we have brought our study and our presentation on marriage, divorce, and remarriage to a close. It may be something that we revisit in the future with a little nuance. Probably not a seven-part series that covers (laughs) 16 hours worth of, of study and lessons and discussion, but... This has been a really, really good talk, man. This has been a really good topic. I know I have thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope our listeners have well. I know we haven't lost our entire audience, so that that's good news. Um, we are still growing. <laughs> our audience is still growing somewhat, but we're going to be getting into new territory with our next episode. We have some things in the works that we're looking forward to discussing. We have some things that I think that everyone um, who listens will appreciate, You may find yourselves agreeing with us wholeheartedly and saying a hearty amen, and you may find yourself thinking that we are just the worst. In any case, what Kevin and I would request is no matter of which side you fall onto, or if you're somewhere in the middle, keep keep studying, keep reading, study with an open mind, and not a mind so open that you know anything can fall into it, but also not a mind so closed that you're closed off to any new understanding or nuances or anything else. And we also want to hear from you guys. I know we really enjoyed and appreciated getting to receive some more of these questions. Would love to hear any other questions on any other topic you might want to ask about or like to hear discussed. Um, would like to have your input on what topics you would like for us to cover in the future. This is something that we're doing for you. This is something that we're doing not only because we enjoy it and we both really like to talk, but because we really want to to go through this with our brethren. We want to create that safe space that we've talked about before where we can ask the tough questions, where we can discuss some of these taboo subjects and we can speak what so many people have thought but have been afraid or unwilling to speak. So don't hesitate to reach out to us. We love hearing from you guys. Yeah, and we're always going to try to be as vulnerable and as honest as possible uh, we've discussed in times past that that neither one of us are our livelihoods are not dependent upon us preaching or teaching somewhere, and that that I, I'm not going to say that that makes us better than anybody by any stretch of the imagination. But it, what it does do is it positions us to be able to perhaps speak to some things that other people would either choose not to speak on are not speak as honestly about. Not that they would be dishonest, but perhaps they would probably avoid some of these topics. And one of the reasons why I say that is because I've actually had people reach out to us and in me, and they have said, we're thankful you're speaking out about these things, because if I spoke about some of those things, then I would probably be fired. And, you know, so we're, we're here to try to be that sounding board of just two talking heads that... <laughs> <laughs> that are that are that are just telling people what we really believe based upon our studies. And if you disagree with us, we're not angry, we're not mad. If if you think that you hold a, a position that is more logically conclu- conclusive than ours, then we would love to hear it, and we would love to hear why you believe that and what evidence. Um, one thing that Lee and I don't believe in is just simply saying that, well, we don't agree, and and therefore you're wrong. Well, if if 
you think we're wrong, then we want to know why. We really do. Um, we're completely serious about that because we have yeah. changed. We, in fact, I told somebody I said one thing about my last track. My track record is if if you know I, I change all the time. I probably change too much as I study, but. <laughs> I'm open. We're open. And, you know, it's it's the reason why we have changed is because we heard things that made a lot more sense than what we currently believed. And there was more evidence to, for those things. I mean, that's why we changed our view on marriage, divorce and remarriage, because we were able to be challenged. And the things that we now believe, uh, we believe that there's more evidence, that there's more logic, there's more reason, there's more context, there's more Jesus in these types of conclusions and beliefs that we've come to and and. That's why we change. So uh, I believe there's a lot of good, sincere people out there who probably disagree and will always disagree. But uh, the good thing about God's grace is, uh, man, we're we're all wrong on many things. And yes. uh, I, I certainly know I am. And, uh, you know, we're wrong every day on many things, but we're trying to just sort our way through a lot of these different doctrines and, and let people know we're here with them and for them. Well, and that's why I'm so thankful that my salvation isn't predicated upon having a perfect understanding of everything that's found in the scriptures. It's, it's so refreshing to be freed from that burden and to lean on Jesus. And that's what, and that's what this is all about. So we want to thank you guys all so much for listening. Thank you for your patience in the previous weeks, well, over the last eight weeks in covering this marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We certainly hope that you have been edified by it. We hope that you have found some peace in it. We hope that you've found some resolve maybe to stick things out and try to find that reconciliation. And maybe you found hope for your future that you can be reconciled unto God and that you can be forgiven. Maybe if you were the guilty party, quote unquote, and that you can have a hope of a good life with a spouse that loves you, even as you love them and as you pursue your love for God. So thank you all for listening. Please like our page on Facebook, share it with your friends, engage with us on Facebook. We'd love to see more discussion on that page. So um, find it, look forward to exploring faith, pursuing grace. It's the same logo that's used on the podcast. Like our podcast, share it with others, give us a five-star review. That'll help us grow our audience as we try to reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ. So thank you all so much, and we will see you next time.